We're going to call this the Ballad of Johnny B. Because that's, because, I mean, come on. You know what I mean? That's just the right title for it. Uh, this is really about John. Really what we see here is Jesus is uh, going to be paying tribute uh, to John, validating John. Um, and that's that's really what it's kind of about. But we're gonna, we're going to do we're going we're forced on a text like this to do a little bit of surgery. Um, I always have to exposit every passage I'm in because exposition is key to coming up to right interpretation. But usually when I come, my whole deal is that I, I do all that exposition on my own, so that when I come to you, I can unpack to you a true faithful part of the text without us having to do this Bible study. But this is a little more challenging here. Uh, but we are going to move. We're going to move fast. So uh, make sure that if you take notes that you're ready with your pen. Uh, otherwise, you can always go back and grab a recording as far as scripture references and stuff. Because I'm not going to wait around too long when I go to a reference. Uh, we're just gonna, I'm just going to go. And so you guys can go check it later and you know, do your homework. So uh, we see right here, uh, off the bat, verse 1, uh, he's been giving us this big, deep, wide theological statements for a while now with this this uh, this little private sitting that he's had with his disciples. Uh, they're done with that, and now we're going back into narrative here. Like this is like historical narrative now, and he's coming out of that private briefing with his disciples, and he's going on again publicly and to all the cities and all the towns. Uh, we see that in in verse one. Um, we also know that he's in prison, right? And he has been in prison. So he's like unable to see Jesus. He's unable to be with Jesus and see him out and about in public ministry performing what Jesus has been performing, doing what he's been doing, proclaiming what he's been proclaiming, shaking up the things that he's been shaking up, right? But he's hearing all about it. He's hearing about all of it. He's getting reports. He's getting updates. He's getting the, the lowdown. Unlike all the, all the workings and the happenings uh, surrounding Jesus, but he's unable to see firsthand any of it. And it's probably kind of like killing him. You know what I mean? Like, like this is probably troubling him. And, and part of the reason that it's killing him is because he's still in prison. He's still in prison. So he sends his disciples out on a recon mission, right, uh, to go to Jesus, which we find in verses 2 and 3. Uh, which reads, now when John uh, heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and, and, and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Um, do you guys know why this is such a strange, strange question for John to send? I mean, you, you probably realize when you read it, like, this is weird. Maybe, maybe you don't quite know why, but this is an odd thing. Um, it's weird because of this little event that had already happened known as the baptism of Jesus. <laughs> That's why it's weird, right? And, and, and John was there, and John was the one uh, who baptized Jesus. And what was the statement? What was the statement that probably one of the greatest statements in our entire Bible that John made? Behold. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world is what he says. It's what John proclaims when he sees Jesus coming at him during that baptism, right? Um, and I want you to notice that when John spoke that, behold, and made that statement, it was a statement. It was not a question. It was a profession, a proclamation, not a possibility. It was a certainty that John had. 
Not a hunch. There was a certainty that Jesus was the anointed one. And yet here we are, seeing him send a message by his disciples to find out if Jesus is really the anointed one or not. This is odd. And so why? Why the doubt? Why is John the Baptist doubting Jesus, um, which was once a certain profession? The reason is because he's sitting in jail. He's still being pressed. He's still being crunched. We're going to talk about this a little later, but I think you and I understand the validity of this doubt with John. Because when life gets hard, maybe you don't, but I do. I'll start to question everything, including God, where he's at, and if he's good. And if he is, then is he for me? I'll start, I'll start questioning all of it. And, and, and John, John's, John's going through. I mean, this, this, this is heavy. So, like, last time I taught on um, the, the sheep being sent out among wolves, right, and uh, the fears that come with that, we talked about the fear factor of those being sent out uh, who follow Jesus. Today we're really, you could say, looking at the doubt factor of those who follow Jesus. Both those things are real and they're, and they're true. And there was a very present doubt factor throughout the life and times of Jesus with his people because Jesus was not doing some of the stuff that, pe that the people thought Messiah would do when he came, including John. See, see John's, John's hearing about Jesus rescuing other people right now from their disease and their illness and their brokenness. Jesus is releasing other people from their bondage, but John is still in his. And he thought he wasn't supposed to be, right? Like, John hadn't been rescued from prison. He hadn't been released. He hadn't been vindicated. His situation had not changed. He's still sitting in jail while Jesus is out traveling around doing other things with other people. And so he doubts that it may be him. Guys, this is why Israel to this very day, in large part, does not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. The same reason. Um, there's a guy, gosh, what's his name? I've been checking this dude out. Um, if you go to YouTube, I, I kind of like accidentally stumbled um, acro across this guy, and, and it, it's actually called So Be It, with an exclamation, exclamation point. Check this guy out. So Be It. It's a Jew. Um, he used to be an Orthodox Jew that um, got saved. Jesus saved this guy. He knows now that Jesus was the Messiah that they were looking for and waiting for. And so now he spends his entire life going around and interviewing other Jews and countrymen off the streets, in the Holy Lands, um, all over the place, in Tel Aviv, all that stuff, um, to try to share the gospel, to try to show them that Jesus was the Messiah that they were waiting for. And you get to watch these videos of this dude. And sometimes people get saved. Sometimes it's just like the light goes on. And these people realize, realize like, oh my gosh, like, you're, like, you missed this. You're right. You know what I mean? But if you hear all of them, like when he interviews these people, like why don't you believe Jesus? Like why don't you believe Jesus was the Messiah? They'll almost always, in one form or another, say because he didn't do everything that was prophesied that he would do. Right? He didn't do everything. Their interpretation of the prophecies um, were were very much truncated, right? And the way that they interpreted it, uh, the pro the problem. That the Orthodox, is that the Orthodox Jews' prophetic timeline concerning the Christ was not accurate, was not accurate the way they interpreted prophecy, so Jesus didn't look accurate to them when he got here. That's the problem. 
To, to them, it was to be this instant manifestation of the throne of David and the power of David and the glory of David and the kingdom of David. This all-in-one deal, right? Not, not like, no, no preludes. Just everything at once. They expected, Israel expected a military leader when the Messiah came who conquered their enemies and restored their here and now kingdom, but instead they got a poor homeless guy that walked around talking and being hated. Like, that's what they got. And so they're like, what is this? This obviously is not him, right? They did not look forward to a crucifixion as their ultimate release. They were looking for a deliverance from their oppressors. John is wrestling with this right now because of where he's at and what he's experiencing and what he's feeling. He's wrestling with this, right? He, he, his doubt dilemma is one of Jesus employing a very different strategy than John thought he would employ when he came to earth. Are you him or should we look for another? And then, of course, we have Jesus' response in, in 4 through 6. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Um, couldn't you have just said yes? Like, yes. You know? Like, are you him? Or should we look for someone else like, yeah, like, go tell, go tell John that, that I am him. But he doesn't. Instead, he spits out this um, Jesus answer, you know? Spits out this Jesus, like, it, his response seems a little bit cryptic, but it's not cryptic. In fact, the response that Jesus gives is better and more assured of an answer for John than if he had simply said yes. Why? Because what Jesus does is he's appealing to the Hebrew scriptures, one that, ones that John would know, which by doing so validates Jesus' claim. That's what's going on here. It, it doesn't lessen it. It actually validates it and establishes it. See, any, anybody could have, could have said, yeah, that's me. Yeah, go tell, go tell John that. Like, anybody could have said that, right? But, but the one who is valid and authentic and true will be an insider to that which is true. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So there's this validation, this authentication by the prophetic word that Christ is referencing. And, and by doing this, Jesus is saying, like, you want to know if I'm the Messiah? Like, look at what, it, look at what the scriptures say. Look at what the Bible says, John. Look at what the scriptures say about Messiah. What does it say? And, and, and then what am I doing? What am I teaching? What am I performing? Does it line up? That, that's, all, that's all that's happening here, right? So, so this answer by Jesus to John was a greater, a greater assurance to John of Jesus' validity. Now, I, 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 you may notice um, that what Jesus does here is not a reference verbatim to Scripture. But what he's doing is he's pulling together a collection of Scriptures that would communicate a broader truth, Right? That's condensed. Okay, uh, this is actually called metalepsis. Have you guys ever heard of metalepsis? No. All right. Well, you're learning. There's, I, I didn't either until this week, and I got into this. Have you ever been reading your New Testament and you see a quote, like someone quotes the Old Testament, and you go back to look at that original quote and it's different? That's a metalepsis. 
Okay? It, it means that what's happening in that case is that the New Testament writers will, t will tend to think like, oh, that just means that they were quoting from the Septuagint, not from, you know, not always, sometimes. Sometimes it's a metalepsis, meaning they're taking a collection of scriptures and condensing it into one. That's a metalepsis, so that we're not having to sit around and spend 10 minutes doing a reference to come to the same truth. Jesus is really uh, doing this here. Uh, with with uh, what he's quoting here for uh, through six, um, what he's doing is he's he's pulling together a collection here from the book of Isaiah. He's quoting from Isaiah. He's doing this basically a, a nice thorough Bible study in Isaiah within a couple of sentences. Um, so the blind receive sight, Isaiah twenty nine eighteen. Uh, and also 35 and 5. The lame walk, Isaiah 35, 6. Lepers cleanse, Isaiah 53, 4. The deaf hear, Isaiah 29, 18 through 19. The dead are raised, Isaiah 26, 18 through 19. The good news preached to the poor, Isaiah 61, uh, 6. Like, like if you took the time to go back and, and reference each of these statements, like, like a half hour could go by. You know what I mean? Like he just takes and he condemns a metalepsis. He takes all of these scriptural truths and slams them into one little bite-sized piece of candy, right? So that we can all walk away from it and, and, and have that truth condensed. So he pulls them all together into a um, condensed statement. And then he, punctu he punctuates this little Bible study um, by saying, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Um, and uh, we, we all know that that's a bad word these days. Uh, there was a lot of people offended by Jesus. There's no doubt. I don't think anybody's ever offended anybody more in the history of the world than Jesus did when he came to this earth. Um, and he still continues to do so today. Uh, he, uh, but blessed is the one who is not uh, offended by me. What he's saying here is blessed is the one who does not find my claim to be false. Blessed is the one who does not find me to be false. That's basically all he's saying. Now this, this offense statement can be relevant to all of us, all of us in our times of doubt, but I believe this is especially appropriate for and directed to John right now, who is sitting in jail and awaiting his death, bothered that he hasn't been rescued or troubled that he might never be. It's for John. So that encouragement is really what it is when these guys take it back to them, um, is John, do not recant, do not despair, do not be personally offended by how your life goes or has gone or will end. Blessing awaits you. Blessing awaits you by holding fast to me. That's basically what that, that statement is. 7 through um, 10. As the disciples went away, of just John that is, to give the message back to John, Jesus began to speak to the crowd. So they're out in public while this interaction is going on and other people are even observing it. They're even kind of see the disciples of John come and ask this question and the response of Jesus. So this is a public thing. Uh, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. John's disciples bailed to go back to deliver uh, the goods, and he decides to turn to the observers of that conversation and give them a Bible study. So first he, first he gives the disciples of John a Bible study to take back to John, and now he's going to get everybody else present a Bible study. Okay? 
Um, and, and, and what he's doing by doing this is, he's, if you notice, he's paying tribute to John. He's paying tribute to John. Okay? So you've got this guy that comes with doubts, and then he's going to turn, and he's actually got to cover that doubt with validity to everybody else who knew John. And notice that John is sitting in jail looking like a loser right now. Looking like his ministry was for nothing. Right? And it's not. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's got to point out the significance of John the Baptist to these people. They all know who John was. They all would have been very familiar, familiar with him. And many of them, if not most of them, would have been among those who made trips out in the wilderness back in the day to see this dude do his thing prior to being in prison. So, so Jesus turns his attention to them concerning John with a few questions. Number, number one, what would you go to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Or, or maybe a man dressed in soft clothing? Or maybe it was a prophet? Right? Now, what is Jesus doing here? He, he's actually stating the obvious to them. He's stating the obvious to them as to why they ever made that trip out into the wilderness. He's using sarcasm with them to establish in them, once again, the reason they made those trips out into the desert. Because their thoughts of John and his significance might have faded a little bit because of the state of John now, right? Um, so, so like he, he's reestablishing that they went out because something special was taking place. Remember, remember why you went out. You, remember, you went out because something special was taking place. Something was going on out in the desert with this guy. Don't forget that. That's why you went out there. This is basically what he's saying. He, he's reminding him of that which really attracted him into the wilderness, and it wasn't to see a reed blowing in the wind. Right? Like, this is commonplace. That's the point. That's why it's kind of sarcasm. It's unimpressive. No one would care or take a, a, a huge trip out in the desert to see a reed blowing in the wind. They've all seen it uh, before. That'd be like saying, like, why did you go all the way over to the beach? To look at a grain of sand or a seagull? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's obvious, right? Uh, he then references a dude dressed in palace clothes cruising around in the desert. Like, is that why you went? Like, was there, was there a dude that was, like, dressed to the nines, like royalty? that was out cruising around the desert, and you just, you know, that would be odd, wouldn't it, right? Um, and, and, uh, and, and the answer, of course, would be no. Uh, that would be the obvious, because that's not where you find high society wandering around in expensive clothes. You don't, you don't find that out in, the, out in the wilderness. So sarcasm, of course not. Um, and and so, so, then, so then why? Why? What was it that attracted you out there when you went out there? A prophet, maybe? Right? One who, which, if you didn't know this, uh, a prophet is simply this. It's one who brings forth the oracles of God. That's it. Um, and so prophecy, because I know there can be all kinds of, like, debate and confusion about this, even in the church today. Does prophecy exist? If it does, what is it? What does it look like? Uh, literally. Beginning in prophecy is the oracles of God being brought forth. Right. That's what it is. So in, in a sense, I, I am teaching today. I am preaching today. But I'm also prophesying in a way today. I'm simply bringing forth the oracles of God. Um, doesn't mean that I'm perfect or every word that I use is perfect. Um, but it does mean that when I bring forth the oracles of God to you, the things of God to you, that's basically what it is to prophesy. And, and Jesus is like, is, is that what you went out to see, right? Um, and, and the answer is bingo, like, like bingo, that's it. A, a man of the Messiah heralding and preaching and proclaiming the oracles of God's king and kingdom. 
that has come upon them. That's what they went out to see. And, and, and now that Jesus has reestablished in them the reason for their attraction into the wilderness, he then continues to establish the validity, the validity of John the Baptist and his ministry, even though he now sits in jail, which is the challenge. And, and he does it by appealing to, again, their Hebrew scriptures. This is where he goes, right? So verse 10, we find this. Behold, I send my messenger before your face. This is what the scriptures say. Who will prepare your way before you. Where is he drawing from? Malachi. Or Malachi. That's just funny to say. If you're Italian, it's Malachi. Malachi. 3-1. Malachi. Okay, you guys. That wasn't funny. Malachi 3-1. He's appealing to the scripture again for credibility. This time concerning John and John's ministry. It's pretty cool. And, And by doing so, he's stating that John the Baptist was was, in fact, that quote-unquote messenger that was chosen specifically by God, as we find in Malachi 3, to prepare the way for Jesus. In other words, if you didn't know this already, John was special. John the Baptist was a special guy. Kind of an understatement. But he he was special. And and it's from here that things are going to get really weird, okay? So stick with me. We're going to go from moving kind of fast to even faster. Um, look at 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What the heck? You know what I mean? Um, what, there's been a lot of controversy. There's a lot of opinions uh, on, on, on what this means. Uh, today you're going to hear mine. And I've prayed about it, and I've read a lot of commentators, and I've tried to do the best that I can with it within the context. It's something that you guys can go home and study your Bibles over and try to come to a conclusion on. But, you know, some of these that we have in here today are just challenges. They're just cha- they're challenges, and there's different thoughts on them. But first of all, this is intriguing because John is considered by Jesus the greatest in one sense and the least in another sense. Uh, I don't know about you, but that's part of the reason why verses like this catch my attention. It's just interesting. There's something interesting about it. So I kind of want to know what that means. Um, The the other reason this is an interesting text is because in our minds, there's not supposed to be this greater and lesser thing that God does. You know what I mean? There's not supposed to be this greater and lesser thing going on in the kingdom. Like God doesn't prefer or discriminate or elevate or play favorites because he's perfectly fair and heaven's perfectly socialistic uh, reality where we're all exactly the same. Um, and that's just not biblical. This is it's just not true at all. Um, so, so verses like this get our full attention. But it also gets our attention because he's bringing forth like this this. Con- this seeming contradict, this weird, mysterious contradiction. No one is greater than John, in one sense, and yet the least are greater than John, in another sense. Okay? What is Jesus saying? Um, The phrase that ended up sticking out to me, I don't know if you guys have found this to be true, but when I read my Bible, I used to just think that um, there were just words that were added in there, uh, just because they were added in there. Um, So like when Jesus would say something, like, uh, like, born of a woman, like, that's something that, that you think doesn't change the meaning of the text. Like, why in the heck did he put that in there? Um, and I used to, like, write it off like, well, that doesn't mean anything. I now know, after years and years and years of reading my Bible, that Jesus is calculated in everything that he communicates all the time. Like, he's intentional and cal- If Jesus says something a certain way, it has a meaning and it has a purpose. 
And so what ended up sticking out to me as I'm studying this is the phrase, born of a woman. Like, don't we know that? Don't we all know that, like, John the Baptist was born of a woman? You know, it's not, it's not like we had to guess, like, aliens dropped him off. You know what I mean? We, we know that he was born uh, of a woman. So, like, what does this um, indicate? Well, in its, first, in its most basic understanding, the phrase born of a woman just means natural birth. Natural birth. That's what it means to be born of a woman. It means you were born naturally. That's how it works, right? Why would he include that? What does he think we wouldn't know about how John got here, right? Um, what is this contrasted with, that John was born with a woman? Those who are least in the kingdom of heaven. That's what it's contrasted with. Well, weren't they born of a woman too at one time? I would, I would think yes, they were, right? So um, we on the backside of all of this that we're looking at have a, have a little bit of a handicap. Like we're, we're in pretty good... We're in a pretty good place because we have all of Scripture and we know the rest of the story. Uh, these, guys, uh, these guys didn't. But knowing the rest of the story, what we also know is part of what Jesus was doing and ushering in by coming was bringing forth another kind of birth through his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension, which would enable the sending of the Holy Spirit. Yes. This is... This is this is the main um, dividing point. This is the line between Old Covenant and New Covenant. It's the ushering in, the sending of this Holy Spirit to go where? To a temple on a mountain in Jerusalem? No. To go into you and to go into me. To indwell us, to take up residence in, in, in us, right? Um, so, like, so, like, the question is, how is one conceived under the new covenant, into the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual birth. It happens through spiritual birth. John 3, to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He cannot even see it. Right? This is what Jesus, I believe, is alluding to here when he says this about John. No, no one born naturally alone is greater than John. So when you look Old Covenant, when you look everything that came before, there was nobody greater than John. You're going, well, gosh, Abraham was pretty rad, you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, he, what King David was pretty rad. Look, no one was greater, according to Jesus, than John, right? Like, like, why? Because it's John's life and John's ministry that bumped up against him, touched the Son of God, the arrival of the Messiah. He was at the end of the chain. When the Son of Man made his appearance, right? It was him who saw and baptized and made the introduction, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That was John, right? So he's like the Ed McMahon of like the, the, the times of Christ, right? Like here's Johnny. He made the introduction. He made the introduction to the Son of God on earth before the people of earth. That's, right. That's incredible. Like, that's a major thing. There's no, there's no one greater, but he was born of a woman. <laughs> he came from that line. He came from that covenant. He came from that chain. He came from that epoch, if you will. Right? This, I believe, is how we are to interpret no one greater up to that point, but all greater after that point, due to the new kind of birth that Jesus brought. Could be a stretch. It could be completely wrong. Could be completely out in left or right field. You can 
can go look at that and have fun with it. Uh, fun with it. But I, I, I do believe, after spending some hours on this this week and reading other guys, um, that, that this is this is really the heart of, of what we're talking about here. Um, there, the other obvious meaning um, that I think also holds true would be that John was assigned one of the greatest tasks, right, ever, introducing Jesus to the world, and yet lost his head because of it, least. I think that's a, probably a very valid secondary, like national meaning to what we're we're seeing here. Okay, let's 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 see it get wilder. We're you guys ready? Okay, twelve to fifteen. <laughs> it just it just keeps just one statement after another. It's like what? Like you know, uh, 12, 12 through fifteen. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence taken by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah to come. He who has an ear, let him hear. Okay, verse 12. First, what does that mean? Jesus is saying that in the current day, the days of Jesus and John, in that present day, the kingdom of heaven has become characterized by violent people and violence from those people in the name of righteousness and religion. That's all that's being said here. In the name of righteousness and religion, these people have become violent in their understanding and their, their dibs that they think that they have on the kingdom of, of heaven. Uh, they think they're doing what's right while being completely wrong. They <laughs> think they're doing what's right while being completely wrong. This is a direct reference to the opposition that people are starting to have against Jesus and also to the people who follow Jesus, like John. He is in prison for proclaiming the kingdom of heaven through repentance and baptism and awaiting his inevitable beheading as a result of that generation hating that message. No, that's not the kingdom of heaven. That's not how it works. And it, and it was. It is. It was characterized by violence, right? From Herod right on down the chain. So violence, force, threat, mistreatment, intimidation, all of those um, those claim, um, all those from, uh, that stuff came from all those who claim dibs on the kingdom, but have none. And oh, by the way, if you can handle it like John's Elijah, you know what I mean? Like that, that's what he spits out here, uh, uh, 14. Um, if you want a bombshell, like this is a bombshell. Like if you were a Jew at the time, um, this is a bombshell. If you can handle it, this is um, Elijah. Elijah, what was he? He was basically, uh, John was basically like him. He was kind of like a copycat of Elijah, but at a different time. Elijah basically was a voice crying in the wilderness to his countrymen to repent and to turn to the Most High God. This is, this is, like, this is exactly what um, John the Baptist is, is doing. Um, it's significant because the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, talk clearly about Elijah coming again. So Jews would know this, like they'd be paying paying attention to this stuff, right? It was it was uh, it was prophesied clearly. Now, what Jesus means by this has been a subject of a lot of controversy. Surprise, you know, just like the last thing we talked about. Uh, lots of debate has gone on around this, but praise God that we have other scriptures to help us gain some clarity, right? In, in what may otherwise be a fantastic conspiracy. Primarily, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. You don't have to go there. You can, I can read it for you real quick. Luke, chapter 1, we have this. In the first chapter, uh, Zechariah, the angel, Zechariah gets a visit from the angel. 
about having this kid, and that's kind of the context. The angel said to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have, uh, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. In the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This angel clarifies to Zechariah at the birth of John the Baptist, right? Like, makes this connection between the son that he's going to have and Elijah. But he doesn't say, your, your son will be Elijah, or he's going to be Elijah. He says, your son's got to come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, right? The likeness. Uh, so John will be the same type character, in other words, with the same type role and the same type ministry and the same type anointing as Elijah. Uh, we also have another passage, a very interesting one, in, a, in another place where a very clear question is asked to John the Baptist. And a very clear answer is given by John the Baptist. And that's in John chapter 1. So we're, we're finding each of these things in the first chapter of each of these Gospels, right? Um, but here's, here's uh, this one. Uh, John chapter 1, if I can find it. This is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So these are religious leaders. These are the religious leaders of the day. And not the good ones. Not the good guys. Okay? Uh, and they're coming to figure out why this dude's stirring, stirring things up. Like, who exactly are you? Right? So they asked him, who are you? And uh, uh, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So he just cuts them off at the head. They're like, but basically he, he assumed that they're like, indicating like, you Messiah, dude. Like, is that what's going on here? He's like, no, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the anointed. I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? So they knew, again, they knew they had prophecies. They were expecting another coming of Elijah. They knew it. And it's on the front of their mind. And they're asking him, are you Elijah? What's his answer? I am not. I am not. Are you the prophet? This is an interesting one that we don't have time to get into today. Are you the prophet like that prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, like, who are you? Like, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Sounds like Elijah, but he already said he's not. Make straight, uh, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Okay? So this is, this is kind of, this helps us a little bit. Because we have this verse where Jesus seemingly is just coming in and going like, like he's Elijah. Emphatically, like, literally. Right? But we have these other places, one by an angel, one by John, um, that are both like, no, it's not. Like, we're straight out, like, denies that. And so people can get kind of weird with this one. <laughs> like it's, it's an interesting one, but, like, what, what does it mean? The bottom line is this. My, again, this is, this is from my studies and what, how I gather scripture and what I believe is going on here. It means that John the Baptist is a post-type of Elijah. That's it. The post type of Elijah became the spirit of Elijah, same ministry as Elijah, same way as Elijah, uh, thus fulfilling the prophecies concerning the future appearing of Elijah. Not physically, but ministerially. Okay? That's what Jesus is declaring to these guys. 
if you can accept that John is the fulfillment of the second arrival of Elijah. I mean, you could have said that to people that knew the scriptures. So, uh, now, um, where is Jesus referencing this material from? Again, uh, Malachi 3.1 and also Malachi 4.5 when he um, says this. Both of these verses together, here's that, that word again, that metal lips to see. He's bringing both these verses together to, to say, oh, this is, a lot, this is the coming one, Elijah. Okay, that's who John is. So you can go look at that. Uh, so was John literally Elijah? No. Was John Elijah-like in every other way? Yes. Okay, so let's go ahead and close this thing out. Um, 16, 16 to the end. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to the playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said of him, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say of him, look at him, he's a glutton, and he's a drunkard, right? A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is giving them an accurate evaluation of what they're like as a generation and the time that they live in, right? And, and he does it by giving them a couple of elementary examples that match their elementary mindset. That's what he's doing. Like, this is not a compliment that Jesus is paying these guys here. And so what does it mean? In a nutshell, it means this. We have put out a call, and you will not respond. That's what's being said here. We have put out a call, and you will not respond. Music is a call to move, right? To dance. A dirge is a call to mourn and to cry. They have done, um, they, they have done neither, like children who don't know how to respond. This is kind of what the insult is, right? Like John and Jesus have both put out a call that requires a response, and that generation, as a nation, did not budge. They did not move, right? Instead, they're just killing them. They're just killing them off because they just want them to shut up. They want the music to stop. They want the dirge to stop. Right? It's 18 and 19. It's really funny. Um, you know, they, they have, they have uh, very specific reasons as to why they didn't follow either of these guys. And they're both completely opposite. You know what I mean? Like they could find any reason not to follow. One, one was too radical, right? Verses 18 and 19. One was too radical and weird in poverty and self-denial to follow. So he had a demon. We're not, we're not going to pay any attention to him. And the other was too radical and weird in excess and self-indulgence. So we're not going to follow him either. We're not going to pay attention to either of these guys for two completely different reasons, right? Like this dude's clearly off because he does this, and this dude's clearly off because he does this. So, like, there's nothing here. There's, not, there's nothing here to pay attention to. They have these contrasting excuses as to why to not follow either and to reject both. Therefore, they do nothing with either of them. They do not respond to either of them. But regardless of their evaluation of John and Jesus and their lifestyles, the fruit of John and Jesus' life um, and what they bring forth validates both of them. This is the very last sentence that we have here with wisdom. What came out of John and what came out of Jesus fruit-wise, life-wise, validates both of them, even though all these people want to sit around and act like they're not valid. Um, and he who has some wisdom is going to know this. Um, um, that's what's meant by, yet wisdom is justified by her.
deeds, meaning not looks, not looks or appearance, but fruit. What comes out? And this is important for us too. All right. Um, some of you are like, okay, great. Like we made our way through that, and that was interesting. Like, what does this mean to me? What does this mean? And I put down a couple of things. Number one, uh, to doubt is not to deny. To doubt is not to deny. And, and like, I need to know this. Because I doubt. Often. I doubt often. I doubt it on the way here this morning. I got up. Got my coffee. I went in. I looked at the sermon that I thought I had put a lot of time into this week, and I went, "This is stupid. Like, who? Like, who do you think you like? You know what I mean? I feel like an imposter half the time. Like, I, I just I question everything. And it's funny because I I don't even question God a lot of times. I just question that He wants anything to do with me. Like sometimes I feel like I'm just a pawn for Him. You know what I mean? Like, I, yes, I think stupid, crazy things like that. And I do it quite a bit. I do the same thing that we see John do here. When life tightens up a little, a little bit, and circumstances get the best of us, and we're in a hard point in life, is God good? Does he care? Is he there? I, I can start thinking like a non-believer and philosophizing, like in my mind, really well, like the world does in those moments. I doubt. And it's a trip to me. To see that John the Baptist did too. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that, that brings me a little bit of redemption. And a little bit of comfort. That like just because we doubt doesn't mean that we, we lose our salvation card. It doesn't mean that we lose our God privileges. Because we doubt. See the beauty of it is that it all depends on him. And not me. That's right. So how can I lose this thing? If he's the one who's done it. And we all need to know this. We need to know that this thing depends on him and not us. If we could lose our salvation, we will do it. Every one of us. We will find a way. But we can't. Because he is the one who owns and has secured our salvation. And so, yes, I doubt. But I, I, I do take comfort because and I, want you, I want you to think about this like, Johnny B like saw him. You know what I mean? Like, like talked to him and interacted with him. He baptized him. He baptized Jesus. <laughs> he, he saw the Spirit descend on Christ and he lived when Christ lived and he doubted. And he doubted. You're okay. Osgina said, to believe is to be in one mind about accepting something is true. To be in disbelief is to be in one mind about rejecting something is true. But to doubt is to waver between the two. To doubt is to be in two minds. And oftentimes, you and I can be. Not because Jesus has given me reason to doubt, but because my brain's broken. It's because I have an amount of faith that's smaller than a mustard seed. And so do you. Right? So do you. It's just what he's given us. But it's okay. Because we're secure. We're secure. Just like John the Baptist was John the Baptist did not lose anything that day. Do you get that? Man? 
He did not lose anything that day. He got an answer. Which brings us to number two. Scripture is the answer to our doubts. Amen. Scripture, the Bible that we have is an answer to our doubt. And, and how we can have 20 of them in our house and barely look at any of them is beyond me. You know what I mean? So like, like God preserved this through the ages so that you and I can have our doubts satisfied. So that we can have our, de our deficits in our faith, in our times of struggle, right? And weakness, re-secured by this. Like, I don't know how many, like, like when you're going throughout the day, like, your stomach will tell you you need to eat, that you need food, right? Your lungs will tell you that you need air. Spiritually, your doubt, when it comes, tells you you need the Word of God. This is your food and this is your oxygen to doubt. This is how you battle doubt. And, and I'm not making this up because we all just saw it in this text. That's right. John comes with doubt. Jesus answers with scripture to reestablish his faith and his confidence. Jesus prescribes this to the doubting man. And so it's good enough for you and I. Use your Bibles. Have your doubts washed clean. With the word of God, often. Amen. Amen. Often. Number three, blessed are those who dance when the music is played. Right? Like, like, and this is everything. Like, what you do with Jesus is everything. What you do with the message of Jesus and the accomplishment and work of Christ is everything. Blessed are those who dance when the music is played. Your response to the music of the gospel being played and the song of eternal life being sung is everything at the end of the day. There is nothing greater that you can put yourself to. Therefore, you can't afford to do nothing. And I want you to know that the music is playing still. It's played in this room today, and it's played in every other room like this across the world still. The same music that played then is playing now. It's still calling people to respond and to get up and dance, right? I was always too cool. When I was, when I was a young kid, I would go to dances because I liked to see girls and be seen by girls. So I'd be like on the back wall in the corner, like, you know what I mean, looking all rad. But I wouldn't go out and dance. I was like too proud for that. You know what I mean? Like I was way, way too cool for that. And, and I think, I think a, lot of, a lot of this is the same thing with, with, with people who, who, know, who know this is real, who know there is nothing greater than this. And yet... You're a little bit ashamed. You're a little bit prideful to throw yourself around the cross of Christ and say, I have nothing. I need you. I need you. You are my everything, right? The music is still playing today, but one day the music will stop. And some people are going to be left without a chair, right? This is what we're talking about. So I would tell you, if you haven't done this, do this. If God is talking to you today, what? Don't put it off. Someday the music's going to stop. Right? So cry out to him now in your heart. He is your only hope. Amen. There is no forgiveness of sins and no abundance of life apart from him. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for even, even the challenging text like this. We know I was having a hard time with this week, God. I, um, I pray that anything that I said that is not faithful to what you meant, to what you intended here, um, that, that it just would be wiped from the memory of people. Uh, I, pray, I pray that you will establish um, that which is true.
out of these scriptures and valuable out of these scriptures and represent you well out of these scriptures in the minds and hearts of your people today as they go. And we ask it in Jesus' name.